Hi, I'm Kareen Levy, and welcome to the first episode of Scrib Chat, the podcast that connects you to your favorite authors through insightful conversations about their latest and greatest works. This week, Scrib CEO Trip Adler caught up with Tim Ferriss to discuss his new book, Tribe of Mentors, which collects advice from more than 100 of the world's best mentors, including Neil Gaiman, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Gretchen Rubin, and Bear Grylls. Scrib Chat is produced by Scrib, the premier reading subscription site that offers monthly access to the best books, audiobooks, news, magazines, and documents, available anytime and on all your favorite devices for only $8.99 a month. For a limited time, you can read Tribe of Mentors on Scribd. You can also find it at tribeofmentors.com and wherever books are sold. And if you're not yet a Scribd member, then you can read for free for 30 days by downloading the Scribd app or visiting scribd.com. That's S-C-R-I-B-D.com. And with that, here's Trip and Tim at Scribd's San Francisco headquarters. Enjoy. So let's dive in. The last time you and I spoke, it was around the launch of Tools of Titans. At that time, you were living in San Francisco, and I blinked my eyes, and all of a sudden, you have a best-selling book, and you're living in Austin. So how that happened, and what made you leave us? You know, I love the Bay Area. I've had a long relationship with the Bay Area, 17 years, came here right after college, but if we look at 99-2000, I actually wanted to move to Austin even at that time. I've just felt a gravitational pull to Austin. Why Austin? I could give you 20 bullet points, and I could talk about the food, I could talk about the music, I could talk about the small town neighborhood feel, I could give you bullets, but it's just an intuitive pull that I felt from the very first time I visited. And I didn't get the job at Trilogy Software out of college. Did get a job in San Jose. That brought me to the Bay, which was a great thing. And I had uh, many, many fantastic times. And certainly I'd say the majority of my closest friends are in San Francisco or the Bay Area, New York City, and a few other cities, including Austin. But there's no geographic need for me to be here from a professional standpoint anymore. And I, it was just time for a change of scenery. There are many other reasons we can get into, but... Uh, yeah, we're looking yeah. at new, uh, new, new office locations for Scribd. I'm, I'm, oh, yeah. I'm pushing for Austin. I think that would oh, be a cool place to have an Austin. office. Yeah. Austin is just getting started. We have to prioritize yeah. based on other reasons, but I yeah. still think Austin would be cool. Austin is one of... I mean, if you believe U.S. News and World Report and others, I mean, Austin is almost always in the top 10, if not top five cities for quality of life. I mean, it really has a lot to offer. And people are friendly. And I, I don't think, I think it will get easier and easier to recruit to Austin. And many of my closest friends from New York, California, and other places are in the process of moving to Austin, which I didn't even realize until I was already there. And they said, oh my God, you moved to Austin? We're doing that in the next six months. So I'm bullish. So how's your move related to your new book? Uh, the move is related to the new book, to Tribe of Mentors in a few ways, because 2017 was a very intense year for me in a lot of respects, for a lot of people, I suppose. But yeah, I turned 40, which in and of itself wasn't a big deal. Got on the stage at TED on the, the 10th anniversary to the day of the first book coming out for our work week to talk about a close brush with suicide in college and to talk about tools and strategies that I've developed to contend with managing that type of darkness, which is a weird juxtaposition. It was really surreal for a lot of people in the audience and including my family who was at the movie theater watching it be live broadcast. I made the mistake of not telling them about the subject matter. So, so why do you suddenly decide to talk about that? Uh, because 
Uh, because I had never spoken on the main stage at TED, it was in the opening session, which is broadcast to hundreds or thousands of theaters, which is a rare opportunity. I felt a moral obligation to get up and talk about that because it doesn't really matter how many recipes for success you have if you don't have, at least for a very large percentage of the population, a toolkit for defending against self-paralysis and maybe even self-destruction. So that was important for me to put out there to also help to destigmatize it so people could talk about it more openly. And Tribe Mentors came about because I had a lot of questions related to reassessing priorities and being more effective and efficient in my own life, partially triggered by a number of close friends passing away in 2007 in a really short order, high density, including one of the mentors in the book, Terry Lachlan, who passed away just a few weeks ago, very unexpectedly. And Austin was one of the decisions for turning a new page and, and, and starting a new chapter, among many others. Uh, so the, the book and a lot of these changes that I've been making are based on the advice that I received from you know, 130 plus world-class performers. So they're, they're very closely tied together. So Tribe Mentors, like, like I'm noticing, is, is a, a lot in common with Tools of Titans. Like they seem like they're you know, very related books. Yeah, the format's very related. The format's related. But like, what, what do you see as the difference and... and and uh, which one do you recommend people read first, or for what reasons should they read one book or the other? Yeah, Tribe Mentors is similar in format in the sense that it's short profiles, which people found easy to digest in Tools of Titan. So I wanted to borrow that best practice. Uh, otherwise, the content is quite different in the sense that almost all of the people in Tribe Mentors have not appeared on my podcast, whereas Tools of Titans was really the Cliff Notes highlight reel of. 100 plus podcast episodes. Tribe Mentor is an entirely new cast of characters, including a lot of people who would be very, very difficult to get booked for two, three hour podcasts, which I, which I normally do. So whether that's, say, a Ben Stiller or an Ayan Hirsi Ali, who's an incredible activist and thinker, or someone like Temple Grandin, let's say, who has autism, but is brilliant in the world of animal behavior and so on, who is incredibly adept at the keyboard, but say a spoken podcast would not be her forte. It's just not her superpower. But on the keyboard, she can give tremendously insightful, profound answers, which she did. Uh, so, so that would be one main difference. And then the other would be, for Tribe of Mentors, I asked everyone the same 11 questions. So it's easier to spot patterns or to pick a theme that you want to go after. For instance, if you're in a dark place or in a rough spot having just experienced failure or at the end of a relationship or a business, whatever it might be. I talked to everybody about failures that set them up for later success or a failure that taught them a lot. And you could just go through and read answers to that question. Or if you're trying to get better at saying no, for instance, I asked everybody what tips or techniques, strategies they've adopted in the last few years to get better at saying no to certain things. So you could follow that thread. And that's, that would be very hard to do uh, with Tools of Titans, which I'm very proud of also. But Given that Tribe of Mentors is the, the latest and greatest, I think it's the most, easy, uh, the most easily actionable book that I've done. So I would say also out of pure self-interest, given that that's the one that's out right now, brand new, I would say check out Tribe of Mentors. Okay. Well, I, I think that uh, th this uh, – one thing that was really interesting is you, you collected advice on how to say no. I've never really – you know, heard a lot of advice on that topic. What would you, given what you've learned, what's your advice on how to say say no to things? Well, they're they're different. They're different approaches. And in fact, I was rejected 
so many times for the book. I mean, people declined, uh, usually politely, being in the book that I included some of the rejection letters. So what percentage of people declined and what percentage of people accepted? Uh, I would say 40, 50% declined. That's a pretty good success rate. Yeah, it's a, it's a decent success rate. But there are many different ways to say no. And there there's, I think, most importantly, language and templates that you can borrow, right? So you don't have to reinvent the wheel. For instance, one thing that I noticed in a number of polite declines, and I keep polite, I call them polite declines. When I get rejected for anything, if it's a really good rejection letter, I keep it in an Evernote file. So I have a collection of rejection letters that I then borrow language from. And some of the language can be as simple as, for instance, really wish I could, but I'm on a no meeting diet for the rest of Q1, right? And making it a, a, a such and such diet, this is really specific wording, right? Like a no conference call diet or as a policy, I'm not doing any conference calls or meetings for Q1 or Q2 or whatever it is to clean up some things on my side and just finish a number of projects because I realize if I have the opportunity to interrupt myself or take meetings and drink coffee instead of focusing on the hard stuff, that's what I'm going to do. So the, the idea of making the decline not a personal decline but a policy is something that people use very frequently. The second is training yourself to be more comfortable with not responding and realizing that, for instance, as, as one billionaire put it, your inbox is everyone else's schedule for your time. Yeah. So we're not doing video, but I can ask our dear host to read the top left number, which is my unread email account. 369,000? Yeah, 369,692 unread email. And... Oh, I win. 482,000. 482,000. Yeah. So there you have it. And 1,000 voicemails. 1,000 voicemails. That beats yeah. me for sure. Yeah, I haven't checked the voicemail in years. So. <laughs> it's like your, your mom wishing you a happy birthday from 10 years ago. Uh, and that takes practice, right? And one of the ways that you can practice is to philosophically maybe, or as just a basic assumption for making decisions, realize that to get the really big positive stuff done, you have to be comfortable or train yourself to be comfortable letting the small bad things happen, right? It's like, all right, you're going to pay a late fee on some book you got from the library, but you have a really important thing to get done today. Like, okay, pay the late fee, <laughs> right? Like it's as maybe an antiquated example, but there's so many of these uh, where it's like, okay, you have your credit card statements. Like, yeah, you could spend three hours trying to cancel that match.com subscription that you've had for four years that you've never used, but like it's $10 a month and you're the CEO of a company. So that's not a good use of your time. And what, what, what I would say to that though is one experiment that you can run, which is very simple. And a lot of the folks I emailed use this, it seems old fashioned, is an autoresponder that just says, you know, in effect, only responding to emails related to current projects. I'm not physically capable of replying to the volume of email that I receive. So thanks for understanding. Below are a couple of common questions and my answers. So for instance, like as a policy, I'm no longer doing any book blurbs, right? As a policy, I'm not doing any speaking engagements in 2018 or whatever it might be. And uh, then you ignore inquiries that relate to those frequently asked questions. And uh, these are, I should just say, decisions that you make, but they are skills that, and habits that you have to practice. It's, it's not like you just decide you 
you read a few paragraphs about how to say no, and then you're set for life. That's not how it works. It's like going to the you have gym. You actively make that decision in advance to yeah. say no to a certain set of things. Right. And then over time, you realize that the costs of saying no are 99 times out of 100, a lot lower than you perceived them to be when you created this mental monster of how you're going to become a pariah and you'll never be invited to anything ever again because you say no for a month. No, that's not how it works. Uh, and I think of uh, Dr. Seuss, uh, Dr. Seuss quote quite a lot, actually, which is, you know, the people who matter don't mind and the people who mind don't matter, which is generally true. You know what I mean? Like the, yeah. like the busiest CEOs you know, if you don't get back to them because you're that they're going to get it. Like they get it. Not to say that those are the only people who matter, but your loved ones also are going to generally over time realize like, okay, like my mom knows if she wants to know where Tim is next week, I actually don't even know. She's like, she's better off reaching out to my assistant. And that seems depersonalized, but over time, it's like, that's the only way that it can work. And then when I'm in person with those people, I am in person and really, really on. But yeah. Yeah. That's smart. Yeah, so there, there, but there are toolkits that you can borrow. It doesn't have to be abstract. Like you can just take language and copy and paste it. Or, for instance, another one that I use a lot that I borrowed from, I think, is Guy Kawasaki. Like I'll, I'll be cheering from the sidelines, right? That's the close. Or like I'll raise a glass from the sidelines, indicating like, no, I can't actively participate in this right now, but I'm sure it'll be a huge success, and I'll be kicking myself later. That's also really common language. Mm -hmm. But for now, like I'll just have to cheer from the sidelines. Best of luck. So, so of the uh, you kind of you were rejected in sort of two ways. One, one way is people wrote sort of like nice emails to you, and the other way is that people just didn't respond. I mean, which which approach? If you're a person who's rejecting something, which approach is better to take: the non-response or to write kind of an eloquent response for why you're not responding? I think it depends on you have to pick and choose your your battles, so to speak. And I say battle because if you respond to too many things you will tend to get people who view persistence as the virtue above all virtues and who will not take no for an answer, which I think is actually a bad thing. Like there are cases where you want to persist. I was rejected by 27 publishers for my first book, but I didn't keep going back to the same publishers, beating them over the head, trying to get a yes. It's like, okay, well, I need to improve my pitch and eventually I'll get a yes from the right publisher. And for that reason, I would say when possible, ideal, no response. Second ideal would be response, but no reason, no justification given. In other words, dear so-and-so, really wish I could. I just can't make this work right now. Best of luck. Because when you offer a reason that also gives someone the pretext for trying to counter, that is why, for instance, if you look at the rejection letters that, that I've included, uh, from all sorts of people I really admire, like Wendy McNaughton, who's an awesome illustrator, or Neil Stevenson, amazing, iconic sci-fi writer, although he's more than that, uh, or Danny Meyer, restaurateur, Shake Shack, all of that. They're really clearly knows. It's not, hey, I really wish I could, but I'm super busy right now. Why don't you ping me in two to three months? That ends up turning into like a 15-car pileup later. Yeah. So they're very clearly knows. But then you, then you have the sort of thoughtful response, which doesn't have to be long. It can be that is intended to make someone you're rejecting understand effectively what is affecting you at the time so that they like you more after the letter than they did beforehand, ideally. And I, I reserve that. I mean, those, those are for relatively special cases. People I already know in most cases or like dear friends of dear friends. Also, as a policy, I, I almost never respond to cold introductions. That's something that I banish people for. 
So if someone's like, hey, meet my friend Todd, and they didn't ask about giving out my personal contact info, generally those people are, are exiled from my communications life. Because that's bad. That's a huge. It's good to know because I think I did a couple cold intros. Those, yeah, <laughs> it's a it's a huge breach of etiquette. Okay. Uh, yeah. Any, any Lesson case. learned. <laughs> um, okay. Well, so so that's really good advice on saying on saying no and on on the cold intros. But what would, what are some other like good advice that came out of the book? Like for example, what's some good advice about finding success? Success can be a pretty slippery term, but I would say that if we're looking at achievement, you really have to pick your targets, right? I mean, it's it's similar, not exactly similar, but along the lines of Warren Buffett's analogy or story when he, he talks about envisioning your investing career as having a punch card with, say, 10 or 12 possible hole punches. Those are the only investments you are allowed to make for your entire life. If that is the case, you, you tend to really pick your shots and not swing at every pitch that gets thrown. And since time is a finite non-renewable resource at least at this point we haven't figured out how to generate more of it getting better at assessing opportunities is really important so i'll give you one piece of advice that came from tribe mentors from kyle maynard so kyle maynard really impressive guy he is a congenital quad amputee that means he was born without arms and legs his arms are cut off just above the elbow and his legs very close to the hip nonetheless Kyle ended up in the National Wrestling Hall of Fame. He became a very successful wrestler, even though he lost every match his first season. And uh, parents, not his parents, who were very supportive, but other parents were calling it child abuse. Then when he started winning, then when he started dominating (laughs) and going undefeated, they started calling it an unfair advantage, which is kind of hilarious. And he's wrestling people with arms and legs. That's right. And uh, he's also, just to establish a little bit of, of background on him, the first quad amputee to climb Mount Kilimanjaro without the aid of prosthetics. So Mount Kilimanjaro has killed able-bodied athletes who have tried to climb it. He military crawled the entire mountain to deposit ashes from a friend who passed away at the summit. Stud of a guy, suffice to say. Also very successful in business. And a a very well-known CEO gave him advice that he passed on to me and my readers, which was when you're assessing an opportunity, an invitation, could be anything, an investment, an employee, rank the opportunity from one to 10, could be anything really, it could be an entree at a, at a restaurant. If you ask a server this question, like rank it from one to 10, but you can't use a seven. And what Kyle noticed for himself when he was being invited to things that if he gave a seven, it almost always meant he was saying yes or inclined to say yes out of guilt or obligation or fear of missing out, which are, are very bad drivers over the long term. Uh, you're not going to hit any targets because you're accepting everyone else's targets. However, if it's one to 10, so speaking engagement, it's a coffee with someone, it's a fill in the blank, or you have, say, current employees here give you one to 10, but no seven on a prospective hire. Six is barely passing, they're out, right? You don't want to hire a, a C minus player. Eight is pretty high on the stoked scale. Like eight is a strong endorsement. And it makes decisions a lot faster by making them much more binary. So I've, I've been using that almost every day, like ranking things one to 10, can't use a seven. It's really, really helpful. That's good. That's a good tip. Yeah. So that's, that's, an, e- that's an easy one. I will give that one a try. Yeah. yeah that's an easy one. And I, I, ask all, I also ask questions because I like immediate gratification, like what is the purchase of less than $100 that has most positively impacted your life in the last six months or in recent memory. So a lot of those are immediately actionable. 
in the sense that you might have like Matt Frazier, who's a CrossFit legend, who uses a very particular uh, Philips wake-up light so that he's using light instead of sound to wake up. That's easily his best purchase for under $100. You might have Sami Nosrat, who's a very well-known chef, came out of Chez Panisse, and writer who travels with a, let me get this right, a host defense my community mushroom supplement for supporting her immune system when she's traveling. She's on the road a lot. So I got that and now I travel with it. Like it literally is in my other bag that I travel with and has been really, really helpful as far as I can tell. So it, it ranges all the way from the frameworks for thinking, like the one to 10, but it can't be a seven, down to like a ball that I have in my backpack next to me right now, which is a rubs ball. It's like a golf ball with little points on it that I use to roll out my feet when I get to say a new hotel if I'm traveling, which seems to alleviate all sorts of knee and back pain. So are there, are there certain uh, themes you heard from a large number of mentors that are kind of just very common themes among successful people? Or, or do you, did you find like the path to success is really spread out and very different across different types of people? Uh, it's both. It's both. So there are patterns. I would say somewhere between 80 and 85% of the people in the book who are every age from 20s to late 70s, maybe even 80s, every industry, color, gender, you name it, it's 80 to 95, 80 to 90% have some type of AM meditation or mindfulness practice that lasts 10 to 20 minutes before they accept any inputs. And so this could be before they check their phone, it could be before they turn their phone off of airplane, like I do, I always have my phone before I go to bed all the way till about 10 a.m. typically, I have my phone on airplane. And that can take different forms. So you have someone like Ray Dalio, who's the founder of the world's largest hedge fund now, Bridgewater Associates, $160 billion under management. He would practice transcendental meditation, mm -hmm. much like, say, uh, David Lynch, the director, who's also in the book. Then you have people who will listen to guided meditation, maybe Tara Brock, maybe uh, Sam Harris, both of those came up repeatedly or use an app like Headspace. So Jimmy Fallon uses Headspace, for instance, which I think is a great place to start for a lot of folks. Uh, it could be some type of rep repetitive playing of music. So some people listen to the same music track over and over again while they do a particular type of exercise that is also repetitive. And I think it's Aisha Tyler, I want to say, who uses, say, an erg, like a, a Concept 2 rower at home. Okay. So meditation is defined very broadly, though. Well, it's it's do. defined broadly, but I would say that the specific purpose for all of these would be present state awareness training of some type. So you are not thinking about what happened yesterday. You are not planning for the next day or the rest of the day. To the extent possible, you are returning to something that is in the present state. That could be breath. It could be a guided meditation. It could be the exertion that you're putting into a sport. Swimming, for instance, for me is very often what I'll do in the morning. And I'll count, like I'll, I'll breathe every third stroke. So I'm alternating sides, which is something I picked up from Terry Lachlan is in the book. But if we're looking at it as most people would conceive of it, like sitting on a couch meditating, if you are prone to just being repelled by the idea of meditation, you're like, no, not for me. Like maybe some Tony, Tony Robbins stuff, maybe something else, but like sitting still and not thinking about anything, that's just not my game, right? Mm -hmm. If you're super type A and driven, uh, that's a really common response. I would, I would say that the goal is not to, it depends on the meditation, but the goal is not to stop thinking. The goal is to develop the skill of not 
just being in the movie that is your thoughts and the stories that you're telling yourself, but being able to step out of that 10 feet so that you're sitting in the audience watching your own thoughts. So just being an observer and training yourself to do that. And when you, when you do that, even for a week or 10 days, I think most people will see that they become less reactive. This means that the usual hair trigger responses that you might experience, say a colleague who drives you nuts because they're whatever, chewing their gum too loudly in meetings, whatever it might be. It could be any stupid little thing, waiting too long in Starbucks or somebody cutting off in traffic. That if you're prone to say anger or prone to self-abuse with your, your inner monologue, you'll have a small gap during which you can then choose a better response. And that's hugely valuable for conflict resolution, for general inner peace, uh, and effectiveness for that matter. You get less distracted. So if you're prone to like opening a tab on your computer and like, holy shit, 45 minutes later, you're like, what did I even go into the inbox to look for? I don't even remember. And I've been on the computer for 45 minutes. If you practice coming back to say your breath in the morning, that's a rehearsal for what you do later in the day where you're like, okay, I actually should get back to task A that I'm supposed to focus on. So it's also a nice force multiplier for for effectiveness. That, that's one pattern. There are also books that come up a lot that most people wouldn't recognize, like Poor Charlie's Almanac by Charlie Munger. That did come up a lot, I noticed. Yeah, it comes up a lot. And a lot of folks have no idea who Charlie Munger is. He is the, he is the quieter half of Warren Buffett. I mean, he's Warren Buffett's investing partner. Very strong opinions, <laughs> very cantankerous, which makes it fun to read. And he's all about mental frameworks. So that's a pattern that came up a lot, like the, the rule of thumb that I just mentioned of ranking things from one to 10, but not using a seven. I wanted to include a lot of, for instance, investors and poker players in the book. So you have legends from poker. I mean, Daniel Negreanu, Fader Holtz, I mean, killers, right? Liv Bowery, Andy Duke, and then these legends in the world of investing. Because to be consistently good in either of those, you have to have sort of frameworks and rules for making decisions. And you also have to get really good at separating process from outcome. Right? Because in investing, in poker, in life, there are elements of chance. You don't control all the pieces on the board. But uh, you can, say, follow a really good process and still have a failure. But it doesn't mean you should stop following that process. If you know over time that's going to get really good results. Conversely, a lot of people will throw caution to the wind do something really reckless, get a good result, and they take that to reinforce being reckless. And then over time, they're guaranteed to lose. That's how a lot of people lose all their money. So I tried to include people, and Charlie Munger is like the penultimate, not the penultimate, that's not the right word. He is the sort of ultimate archetype for mental models. People who have these frameworks for making better decisions. Kyle's is a great example. And that comes up over and over and over again, which is cool because it doesn't matter if someone's an athletic coach or a director or an investor, if they have broad frameworks for making better decisions or checklists, like anybody can use that for almost anything. So then how do you how do you develop a better framework for making decisions? I mean I mean that that sounds great to have a really good framework for making decisions, but if you're listening to this podcast and you want to start working on that, how do you even get started thinking about that? Oh, you just copy and paste. Say so you just take one. Like So from someone else. Yeah, you take one from somebody else. Uh, and And then you learn based on Experience. Yeah, then you test it out. So like the ranking from one to ten can't use a seven. Like that would be a really simple that example. That would be an example. Right? Okay. Another one would be if you're feeling overwhelmed to uh, journaling comes up a lot. Different types of journaling comes up repeatedly in Tribe of Mentors. And you could sit down and just write at the top. This is one that I use a lot. Like what might this look like if it were easy? Mm -hmm. Because I do think that 
we're very much trained, particularly if we have a high work capacity, to sometimes look for approaches that are very sophisticated, i.e. complex, and then overestimate our bandwidth, right? So then it's like, oh my God, now I have committed to six things that are that are all in and of themselves, like a, a full-time job for somebody else. Mm-hmm. Now what? And if you sit down and just say, what might this look like if it were easy? And you, f- and you freeform write without any editing for a page or two, or write out as many bullets as you can, chances are there will be at least one or two things you can use to s- really dramatically streamline a project. And uh, that would be another sort of process model that people can use really, really easily. So what's an example of how you, you've used that process in your own life? Uh, well, for instance, if uh, for, for most authors, a book tour is just a brutal like running of the gauntlet. It's, it's really something that authors do not look forward to at all because it's so grueling. And for me, I said, well, what might this look like if it were easy? And what might this look like if it were fun? Those are two different lists. Mm-hmm. And I decided, A, that I would condense almost everything in two weeks. So I know there's a, there's a finite span of really pounding the pavement. Yeah. Number two, limited in-person engagements because there's so much logistic bloat around traveling for in-person yeah. events that are better allocated to things that I can measure, right? So there's... So on a busy day, how many interviews do you do in a day? Oh, on, I mean, on launch day, I might do 12, 20 interviews, right? I mean, somewhere in that Just range. Back-to-back, basically. You can do it back-to-back. or you, I mean, I'm a fan of batching similar activities so you might do something for instance i've used radio satellite tours where you sit in a room with a telephone and a lot of coffee and you have someone who's patching you through to a different interview every say 20 minutes and you just do that for like eight hours Mm -hmm. but then you're you're done and uh, so batching is very important but also looking at ways that i can repurpose or utilize the things I'm doing in a book tour. So I will, for instance, if I'm doing in-person events, instead of getting up and talking about the book that everyone has already bought to be at the event, I mean, how boring is that? Which is what every book tour is. And I've done that before. I'm guilty of it. I realized, wait a second, why don't I just interview someone on stage, make it a live version of the podcast. Everyone in the audience gets something brand new and I get a recording that I can use for the podcast. Perfect. That's fun for me. And by the time I get to say an event at night, where I'm going to be on stage. The last thing I want to do after talking about myself all day is to talk about myself. <laughs> it's I'm so bored of myself. So I'll get a friend on stage and you know maybe have a little bit of wine together beforehand like tonight at the Castro Theater and then we just have a good time. So the, the those are the way I used to do book launches is the entire is the exact opposite. It was really painful. I was throwing everything in the kitchen sink at a launch and I no longer think that's that's necessary, and it's certainly not terribly enjoyable. But I, I apply that to almost everything in writing process. I apply it to writing process. I apply it to exercise. I apply it to you name it, right? What might this look like if it were easy? If you've made the New Year's resolution to lose weight or change your diet and, and you failed a month or two in every year, you have to change the way that you are setting up that resolution, right? So... What might this look like if it were easy? Well, if, for instance, you're planning on hitting the gym four times a week right out of the gate and you don't currently, currently go to the gym at all, it's like, all right, well, make it once a week and make it 10 minutes. That's it. Like All you have to do to win, like to check the box of the new habit for, say, the first two months is go to the gym once a week and lift weights or get on a treadmill for 10 minutes. 
like make stack the deck so it is as easy as possible to get traction in a new habit right so that would be another example uh there, there are many many different ways to go about it cool so, so these, these are some really good themes that came up across a lot of people in the book what, are there some uh some uh some pieces of advice that are maybe were less common but are like really really powerful and could really help people if they if they heard them yeah, there, there, there are dozens of them. I'll give a couple that I think are pretty cool. One would be something that's supported actually by a fair amount of uh, research, and that is turning your phone to grayscale if you want to decrease the amount of time you spend on social media. And you, there are different ways to do this. If you just search for like the model of your phone turning to grayscale, it'll take you through how to do it. On an iPhone, it's very, very simple. And you change your phone to black and white, and lo and behold... Social media is pretty boring uh, when it's in black and white, and you will automatically, in most people, and I've already tested this with you know, thousands of people who've read the book and have provided feedback, like 30, 40%, I mean, you'll basically cut your use in half because it's so much less gratifying. Um, so that's a very simple thing to do. Uh, another would be also phone-related, since I'm just on that theme. If you want to try to work on, say, onset insomnia, if you have insomnia, you could take your phone, dim the screen and play Tetris for in color in this case before you go to bed and based on a number of studies related to PTSD actually using a highly visual game like that that is short in duration you can visually overwrite any type of loop in your head that is likely to keep you up so some argument you had or some unanswered email that you have looping through your head Playing five or ten minutes of Tetris before you go to bed can help a lot with onset insomnia. So that's another thing that I've tested a lot myself. Cool. Yeah, and there, I mean, there are a hundred plus of those, but you don't want to try to use a hundred plus at the same time. That's another mistake a lot of people make. It's like, pick, pick one or two. Yeah. That's plenty. Like one or two new behaviors or one or two bad behaviors subtracted a month, if you pick them well, like your life is fundamentally completely different a year later. So one or two a month, that's a good, a good rate. I think that's plenty. I mean, I'm impatient, so I'll probably try once a week. But uh, certainly don't try to make 17 behavioral changes at once. That very rarely works out. So another thing you talk about in the book is, uh, is networking. Um, it's like your network is your net worth. What advice do you have on, on networking? Uh, I would say that first and foremost, if you don't have in a network to speak of, I highly suggest volunteering. And this can this can this can be effective even if you already have a decent network. But volunteer, in my case, this is what I did when I first arrived in Silicon Valley with, for instance, organizations related to entrepreneurship. Depends on what type of people you want to meet. That could be the entrepreneurs organization, the EO with chapters around the country. It could be something like the Commonwealth Club or the Indus Entrepreneur Tie, which I think still exists down in in the southern Santa Clara, San Jose area of Silicon Valley. And this is such an effective approach for several reasons. When you volunteer, you will realize very quickly that most people who are volunteering are doing the bare minimum they can do to volunteer because they're not getting paid. They don't feel like they have to or should do anything. This provides an excellent opportunity, even if you just fill up empty water glasses with your spare time to look like an all-star. So you stand out to the organizers. You can also ask if they have any other responsibilities you can take on. By being proactive, what happened to me and has happened to other people who have tried this is I was ultimately invited to take on more meaningful roles related to content at some of these events. 
And then eventually, after not that long, I would say two or three months, I was asked if I was asked or I wasn't asked, but the room was asked uh, in an organizational meeting who wants to volunteer if anyone does to spearhead the next major event. And I raised my hand. This was for something called SVACE at the time. And that then allowed me to choose the theme of the event and the speakers. So now, Peon Tim, who's driving around in his mom's hand-me-down, you know, beat-up green minivan who knows nobody in Silicon Valley, is all of a sudden reaching out to Trip Hawkins, the co-founder of Electronic Arts, reaching out to Jack Canfield, co-creator of Chicken Soup for the Soul, hundreds and hundreds of millions of copies sold, and so on and so forth, borrowing the credibility of this organization having the lure of media like Forbes and -and so-and-so are all going to show up to cover the event. And I was able to develop personal relationships with these folks. Now, they they weren't my best friends for sure, but I was able to ensure, and I did ensure that they had a fantastic experience at this event. And I kept in touch with a few of them very infrequently. Uh, So this is, this is a meta recommendation. Do not look for short-term transactions. So if you're trying to network so you can ask someone for something and, a month, I view that as a waste of everyone's time and and uh, kind of dirty. It's just gonna you're gonna sell your hands doing that. Conversely, Jack Canfield specifically every six to twelve months, very infrequently. If I had a life question, right, some more philosophically, hey, I'm trying to decide between these two things. Uh, I totally understand if you don't have time to reply, but this is how I'm thinking about it. Do you have any words of wisdom as, as to how you might, given your life experience, think about this? Right? Like every six to 12 months. Sometimes he would reply. Sometimes he'd be too busy. And seven years later, he's the one who convinced me to do the four-hour work week and introduced me to the person who became my agent, who's still my agent to this day. So if it weren't for that volunteering in the very beginning, four-hour work week probably wouldn't have happened and I wouldn't be here right now. So that's one. So you just need to basically put in the time networking. You don't know when that's going to impact you. I would also say like look for really awesome people who you can be friends with for 10 plus years. Yeah. And if... Don't think about the transactional value of it. It's, it's a waste. You're going to have such a high churn rate. It's it's going to be, I, I think, unpleasant and kind of a waste of everyone's time. So for those people who want a, a real how-to, I would, I would just Google, I think it's how to build a world-class network in record time, of course it is, uh, and my name, but I gave a South by Southwest talk on this uh, that outlines some of the approaches that can work really well. And if you're in a rush, just do something else. <laughs> uh, because if you want to build a really, really good network, I would also say that you don't have to start with people who are the hardest to get a hold of. In other words, People who are the best at what they do, for instance, the people in Tribe of Mentors, a lot of the folks who are at the top of their game, like Kelly Slater, world's most famous, most decorated surfer, or you have a science fiction writer, then you have an investor, then you have actor. A lot of those people know one another, even though they're in completely different fields. So if you get to know, for instance, like is it easier to get a hold of Ben Stiller or to go to a gym in New York City or San Francisco or wherever and train with a really famous black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu? The latter is easier. There's a really good chance, though, if you train with someone who's the best at foil boarding or fill in the blank, that they know other people who are A players in other worlds. So just become really good friends with one that you mesh with. Don't be a dick and play the long game. And if they then get to the point where they trust you as the messenger, then you can try to impart a message or a question to someone. 
But a lot of folks make the mistake, and I made this mistake too early on, that they think if my pitch is good enough, I'll just find their private email address and pitch them and then my life will be changed. It doesn't work that way because people who are higher profile are first and foremost, mostly I would say, concerned that you're going to cause some type of disgrace or embarrassment by doing something unethical. It doesn't matter how good your pitch is. If they don't know who you are and no one is vouching for you, they shouldn't do it and chances are they won't do it. That's really good advice. So, so in the book, you, you mention a lot of quotes throughout the book. Any, any favorite quotes or any? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Tons of favorites. Yeah. What are, your, what are, th- what are three really interesting quotes you like? Uh, one quote I really like is by Archilochus, which is an old name, as you might guess. And it is, I might be getting it slightly off, but it'll be close. We do not rise to the level of our expectations. We fall to the level of our training. And uh, a, a close corollary to that would be, I'll give you the quote first. Let me get this right. Hope is not a strategy. This is the most important part. Hope is not a strategy. Luck is not a factor. Failure is not an option. That's James Cameron. And James Cameron is really impressive. The more you study him, the more impressive he is. So Terminator, Avatar, you name it. All has also set a number of world records for deep sea exploration and so on. I mean, he creates the technology that everyone else ends up using. And that quote was on a shirt he gave to all of the staff on Avatar, which I ended up getting one of, and not because I was working on the movie, but I went to a fundraiser and I got the shirt. Uh, he's an intense dude. But those are all very closely related. Like, hope is not a strategy. If you want to do really well in a negotiation, in asking for a raise, in fill in the blank, playing soccer in a game under bright lights that you've never done before, you have to train for that. Like, positive thinking is not going to get you there. Uh, not alone, anyway. So, for instance, when I was preparing for TED, I was nervous. I mean, if you want to see some of the most impressive esteemed, brilliant speakers in the world freaking out, they just go backstage at TED, which you probably can't do. But if you're there as a speaker, you'll see the, the kind of batting cage where people are getting ready, and they're like four or five speakers. These are some of the most famous people in the world, and they're pacing around like caged animals, sweating. I mean, it's nerve-wracking. So before going to TED, I knew that was waiting for me. And instead of just rehearsing in front of my friends, what I would do is I would call friends who worked in various companies around San Francisco, and I'd say, hey, would it be possible for you to send out an email to folks, if you have a big conference room, to let me do a rehearsal of my TED Talk in your conference room? If if people want to provide feedback, they can come and have lunch. And so I'd have a room full of strangers who don't really care about me, which is perfect, uh, watching me rehearse, and then uh, I would be nervous, of course, rehearse, get feedback, and then hopefully give it a second time. If, if I had enough time since the TED Talk, my TED Talk was, had to be between 12 and 14 minutes, which is very short. And then, this is really important, once I got comfortable doing it in front of a small group, I knew I'd be in front of 1,500. So I assumed, well, I'm going to be at least three, four times as nervous. Physiologically, what is that going to look like? My heart's going to be pounding. I'm going to be sweating. Okay. So I put on like an extra layer of clothing, and then I would pound like three double espressos. Wait 10, 15 minutes. Now I'm wired out of my mind. And then I would go up and I'd give the same talk to try to simulate what it would be like later. And I think that that translates to a lot. So the Archilochus and the James Cameron quote uh, are two things I think of constantly. Cool. Yeah. We have a few more minutes here. I thought maybe it'd be fun to uh, 
try try turning the tables a little bit here and asking you the same questions that you ask all of the all of the mentors. Uh, sure, does that work for you? That works for me. Pretty pretty quick here. I'll I'll do do my best. Rapid fire. Okay, what is an unusual habit or absurd thing that you love? I finished copy editing, meaning the last line of editing the Four Hour Body, my second book, at exactly five fifty five p.m. I was in a Samovar tea house here in Nesnaf. So 5.55, whenever it shows up on my phone, I take a screenshot of it. It's become a lucky number for me. And so I've just, I, and I don't do anything with the screenshots. I just have hundreds of screenshots of 5.55. <laughs> okay, that's pretty absurd. Yeah, yeah, we, we all have <laughs> something. We, it, we, we, all, we all have something, yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, what is the book or books you've given most as a gift and why? Some of the books I've given the most as gifts are The Moral Letters to Lucilius, which is a collection of letters by Seneca. So stoic, stoic thinker and writer, really fantastic writing that is very actionable. Every letter is about some problem or opportunity that Achilles has. Like, oh, I hear so-and-so is smack-talking you in the Senate. That happened to me 10 years ago. Let me tell you how I think you should handle it. It's very applicable now. Uh, I actually put together a free, uh, free ebook called The Tao of Seneca, which is just a collection of letters. You can also find them in public domain. I think Wiki Commons and other places, so you can check that out. But that would be one. Uh, the second would be, uh, I think Zorba the Greek is one I've gifted a whole lot. And there's another fiction book called The Baron in the Trees by Italo Calvino, which is just a really lovely, whimsical, easy read that transports you into this surreal world that is on one hand completely absurd and on the other hand completely believable, which is really deft line to walk so th- those are a few that i've gifted a whole lot uh what purchase of a hundred dollars or less has most I, you already know the question so yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> what's, well, yeah what's your what's your purchase of a hundred dollars or less that's impacted your life in the last six months uh i would say the one that comes to mind is that rubs ball r-u-b-z which looks like a golf ball with little studs on it then that was recommended to me actually gifted to me by amelia boone who's a four-time world champion in obstacle course racing also a full-time attorney just an all-around badass, and that has helped me so much with travel and any type of foot or ankle, even back pain, just rolling your feet out for a few minutes in the morning or at night or while you're sitting at a desk. It's just fantastic, and it's it can sit in your pants pocket or in a pocket on your backpack. So I'd say, I'd say that one's easy. That's like six bucks, super cheap. Cool. And what's one of the best or most worthwhile investments you've ever made? Uh, one of the best most worthwhile investments I've ever made besides the volunteering that we talked about would be creating a real world MBA for myself where instead of going to say Stanford GSP, which I fantasized about going to, I decided to take the same amount of money. So 60 grand a year, it doesn't have to be that expensive, but in my case, I mean, that's how much it would have cost and investing in startups for two years, expecting to lose it all. I was viewing it as tuition. So the, the only way that, or the way I determined it was worth doing, at least experimenting with, was focusing on the skills and relationships I would develop, but assuming that I would lose all the money, just like tuition, non-recoupable. And that led me on this wild adventure, thanks to Mike Maples. He's the one who helped me do it. Mike Maples Jr. is one of the founding partners of Floodgate with all the startup stuff, which has been just bonkers and certainly been the most productive financial piece of my life. So that was that was also a great investment. Cool. So you've done you know so many uh, different things in your life now, and you've written a pretty large variety of books on different topics. What do you see yourself doing in the next few years? The next few years, I don't know. I really don't know. And uh, I have found 
that I have the most fun and end up walking through the most interesting doors when I don't over plan or over calendar. So very deliberately after big projects like driver mentors, I leave my calendar very wide open because the types of opportunities and people who will kind of appear out of the ether are always more interesting than anything I could have planned in advance. And I want to leave the room for improvising and taking advantage of those, uh, which I've already seen things starting to come over the transom. That I'm like, oh my God, like I never so your possibly... life can go really in any direction. In the next life can go any direction. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I'm not wedded to a plan. And for some people, that'd be very highly stressful. And I think there are people who can execute and have executed like 10-year plans to a T and do really well with that. My temperament just doesn't suit that very well. <laughs> I'm much more... I enjoy having sort of the door number three question mark surprise option. So yeah, I, I really could not tell you what I'm doing six months from now, let alone three years from now. Well, that's exciting. I think we uh, can't wait to see what you do next. Thanks. Yeah. Hopefully, we have another another book. We can put it on script and yeah, do another script chat. Ma- make it happen. Yeah. No, I'm I'm excited too, and I'm excited to see what people do with the book too. I mean, I think Tribe Mentors is the most easily digested, actionable book that I put together. And a lot of my friends who routinely bust my balls and definitely call my baby ugly if my baby's ugly uh, have said that to me as as early proofreaders. So I'm really excited to see what people do with it. Yeah, so fingers crossed. And if another book comes, you guys will be the first to know. Awesome. Well, great to uh, talk to you today. And thanks so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, that does it for this episode of Scrib Chat. Thanks to Tim Ferriss for joining us. And don't forget, for a limited time, you can read Tribe of Mentors on Scribd. You can also find it at tribeofmentors.com and wherever books are sold. And if you're not yet a Scribd member, you can read for free for 30 days by downloading the Scribd app or visiting scribd.com. That's S-C-R-I-B-D.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>